Anyway, she goes to bed. I open up a box out of Barbara's. I light up. I call myself a cognac. Uh. And I watch the 14 fists of McCluskey. <laughs> what a picture. Yo, homie, that my briefcase? And start asking the right fucking questions. All right, Roxanne Haddadi, incredible film, TV critic, culture writer uh, for Vulture, is back with me again, as promised from last week when we talked about The Place Beyond the Pines. We've just been gushing about Chiam France. But let's dive into 2007's Michael Clayton, arguably the best performance of George Clooney's entire career. A movie that 100%. is a movie that lures you into a false sense of I can totally turn this off and not go to sleep. Also, as we were mentioning in the last episode, uh, I I think Tony Gilroy's best movie, hands down, there mm-hmm. is no argument. Mm-hmm. And it's just an absolute stunner. And I just want to hear you gush all about it. It is just spectacular. Well, I want to ask you a question before we start our gushing. Yes, yes. Which is that 2007 was an absolutely insane movie year. Truly crazy. Like, Assassination of Jesse James, No Country, There Will Be Blood, Michael Clayton, Eastern Promises, 310 to Yuma. Like, this year is absolutely insane. Zodiac. Zodiac. So I want to know, what is your favorite of 07? Before we go to Michael Clayton, which is in my top five, probably in my top three, I want to know how you would, like, rank this year out. Um, mm-hmm. do you want me to tell you, so I had my brother at, at the time in Australia worked for a, a film distribution company in their, their home entertainment section mm-hmm. and he worked there for 10 years and on your 10 year mm-hmm. anniversary, they give you a gold card for Ooh. an exhibitor. And this gold mm-hmm. card entitles you to two free tickets to any movie session, any day of the week <gasps> at that oh exhibit. Wow. And my brother worked a lot mm-hmm. and I was a university student and I so said, I got the, card. and I said, please, for the love of God, give me that card. I love that. <laughs> and he's like, oh, but what if I need, I go, I'll, I'll drop everything. I'll drive wherever you are. I don't care if you're in Sydney. I don't care if you're on the central coast, you're living on the central coast at the time, which is about an hour north of Sydney. I don't care where you are. I'll drive it to you if you need it. He never needed it. Like I knew, I knew how no. often he went to the movies. He never needed it. And right. I think one time I gave it back to him. In a day in Australia, because all these movies came out, not Zodiac was the only exception, but in a day, I watched my, uh, oh no, two days. I watched Michael Clayton and I watched Assassination of Jesse James by the Cow Robert Ford in one day. And then the next day I went and saw There'll Be Blood in No Country for Old Men. Oh my God. I mean, like, I know you've had many, many <laughs> exceptional days your husband, your father, you just did the heat thing. But like, did this day rank very high? I was like, I can't see any more movies. No, you're done. You're done. They are never going to live up. Like, especially I, I, I watched there will be, I remember on the third, I'm like, how can the day be better than yesterday? Right. It's not possible to be better than yesterday. Yesterday was so divergent and amazing. And I watched there will be blood and there will be blood ended and the, Johnny Greenwood scores going and I'm like walking out and I'm like, there is nothing. There's just no way. And then I walked into no country for old men and I walked out and I'm like, actually maybe 
Yeah. Is a way for movies to be better? I, I had no idea. So if I had to say, and like as blasphemous as it is, I would just say like, No Country for Old Men for me is probably one of my favorite films. So if I'm talking about 2007 genuinely and I love Zodiac to pieces, I would probably say like, if you had to ask me, like I'm holding up a tattoo that I have on my mm -hmm. arm for Roxanne right now, which is a, mm -hmm. Anton Chigurh. I, I mm -hmm. genuinely think No Country for Old Men is my favorite of that year. I, I, a I, very, a very impressive rendering of Anton. Yeah. I knew immediately who that was. <laughs> thank that you. That was very well done. Shout oh, out to that artist. Thank you, Gus Honey, you legend, uh, Sydney tattooist. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, so I think No Country for Old Men is my favorite. Mm -hmm. But, and then, and then obviously split by the by a molecule is probably Zodiac because again, these movies are so, mean so much to me collectively. Yeah. But I honestly, depending on what I watched that day, that three slot is any and almost all of the movies that you just mentioned. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's so it's so insane that all of them came out in the same year, that they all varied so much in genre. I mean, again, you know that I love to say this, but like this was pre-Marvel. This yeah. is what movies were like pre-marvel because yeah. iron man was the next year about about adults yeah about <laughs> adults and adult problems um yeah so like it's just it's crazy to consider that year how many auteurs had movies come out that year and just the fact that and again this is something that's changed in 15 years is that like there were movie stars in this movies yes. you know they were a list movie stars like a there plus, was plus. a plus a plus plus, plus. there was george there was brad putting aside your personal feelings on these people there was casey affleck who yeah. also was gonna do gone baby gone and like who seemed like he was a rising star in the mold of ben i mean there were these people there was brolin you know what i mean so like it was a time also there was fucking robert downey before <laughs> iron man you know so it's like it felt like yes to your point they were movies for adults starring actors who at least i perceived as having lived lives outside of being actors yeah. if that makes sense outside like of there the was, machine yeah like there was lived experience there and that's the kind of thing that we're talking about like when we mourn people like ray liotta and like james khan and these people it's like they came up at a time in the 70s and 80s when like yes you were an actor but you also probably like worked other jobs and maybe you didn't necessarily live in la and maybe your parents weren't in Hollywood. And you know what I mean? There was like other and you experiences. you had no social presence, no social media yes. presence. There were like experiences to be had. And I'm sure that we sound like nostalgic, farty film bros, but like that kind of inaccessibility is very much what I miss. And I think that inaccessibility is like, part of what makes Clooney's performance in Michael Clayton so good and I agree with you probably the best of his career I would put Syriana and very of course close. like Oceans up there like oh, very, very God. but like if we're talking about like 
the George Clooney ability to get like razor hard, like diamond sharp in a second, that's this movie. And that's like the amount of resignation and resentment and rage that Clooney is just carrying in his body and able to summon in like a second. Like, how does this movie go from the very melancholy opening with the horses and the car bomb to his, like, do I look like I'm negotiating, right? Like, there is, like, an ocean. Oh, God. I'm going to rhyme. <laughs> an ocean of emotion between <laughs> those two versions of Clooney. But, like, the movie is bookended by them, right? Like, it needs him to be very soft in that opening and then very defiant and furious at its end. And Clooney, like, Clooney does that shit, like, like, it's nothing. Like, it's seamless. Like, you know what I mean? Like, there is just nothing to it. And I've, and I've that, forgotten until one of the recent viewers, and I, I feel like it's, like, something I regularly forget and then mm-hmm. love to rediscover, mm-hmm. is... The come down from the adrenaline of that scene in the cab, like where he hands mm-hmm. over the recording and he goes, mm-hmm. drive 50 bucks, you know, just drive, like however much mm-hmm. this is worth. Mm-hmm. And he's driving around and you yeah. watch him like come down. Yes. Deflate. Deflate because you need to build yourself up to that moment. But it's just like, that's the, like the, the kind of like standout piece of humanity that some of his other performances are so sharp and they're so clinical and they're just so mm-hmm. deliberate. Like that's why you love Danny Ocean because like even when he is being emotional, it all seems like it's part of the performance and the coolness mm-hmm. just drips off him. But in this, watching him get that moment with Tilda Swinton and do that amazing scene and then have to have the come down where he's like, he has to wear all of the consequences of everything that he did to Tom Wilkinson. I just, I'm just, oh. It's just, it's such a fucking great movie, top to bottom. <laughs> it's so good. It's Everything's so good. good about it. Everything is good about it. So is good. And it's, in there? Oh my God. Yeah. And it's so funny too, to like, think about, it's so funny to think about what most people associate Clooney with, which is not to insult most people, although I often do insult most people. <laughs> it's like, it you have is a like, friend here. The Oceans trilogy, which are which are exceptional. I love them. They're so much fun. They're great. It's like Out of Sight, which is like very slick, very funny, very sexy. And like that version of Clooney, I think, is great. I mean, who doesn't like that version of Clooney, right? right? But like, give me your tired Clooney. Give me your give me your fatigued Clooney, your Clooney who is just done with your fucking shit. Because, like, that guy, you know what I mean? Like, that guy is who is giving Michael Clayton such believability. And, and like, you, you just nailed it. You just nailed it. So early in his career, he struggled, right? Until he got his mm-hmm. ER break and then mm-hmm. really, really, really broke. This is a guy who, like, struggled and wasn't quite getting there and had had, like, a, you know, his dad was in broadcasting and he was struggling, struggling, struggling. And it feels like, it's at that perfect time of his career of going through like media storms and going through all that bullshit and being the biggest star and then not. A disaster everywhere. Yeah. 
Sexiest Man Alive, all this stuff, and then it kind of like fades, and it's like the great thing about Clayton is like this guy's seen some shit. Mm-hmm. He's seen some shit, mm-hmm. and Gilroy just like mounts everything onto this guy that he has to do. And so the guilt yeah. that is there and all the stories and all the concerns, that's what I love about Pollock's characters. Like this guy, we need him to sign a non-disclosure agreement because he's seen some of the worst sides of all of these wealthy people that we represent because he's gone in and been the, the clean, the cleanup man mm-hmm. and watching him like his dream, not quite working out to what he'd expected that Clooney and really leaning into that disappointment is everything about why Michael Clayton is just infinitely rewatchable. Like you just like that guy is so believable. And so you can, you can really, I don't know. There's just such an empathy that you're able to like dial into and like, uh, how many times have you tried something and it's failed? And how many times have you had those failures and how, how many times have you reviewed where you are and you've gone like, how did I get here? Like it's the perfect, how did I get here guy? But he's so good at this thing that he's found himself in. Um, uh, that makes him irreplaceable. And yeah, it's just, uh, it's special. Well, I mean, like this is the F Scott Fitzgerald question, right? Like, are there second acts in American lives? And we talk a lot about how Michael Mann movies often at their core consider this. Like if you are exceptional at something, at some kind of profession or some kind of job, legal or illegal, could you leave it behind if you fall in love could you leave it behind if you want to retire like you know like what's the trade-off of being good at something versus how much it fulfills you or doesn't after a certain point and so I think like what Clooney personifies so much is that sense of like looking around to your point and taking stock and being like well, is this everything I have to offer? And it's still (laughs) to like the same old assholes. Like I am complicit in this system that remains unequal and remains run by a small minority. And I also think that the story is very smart in that, again, sort of like Place Beyond the Pines, there's like a lot of allusion to the things that Michael Clayton has done we get a sense he's cleaned up some huge messes. He's worked for some awful people. He has that really great first scene where the guy who, I always forget the actor's name from True Blood and so many other things. I'm going to find him. Um, Yeah, we'll find him. But yes, like he has potentially, like not potentially, he has hit a jogger like on his drive. And Michael Clayton's like, well, your best bet's probably to call the guy. (laughs) And this guy is just, he is just shocked by this, right? Like he's heard so many stories about Clayton fixing these nightmarish scenarios. For Den- Dennis O'Hare is the actor. Dennis O'Hare. Yes. So good. And I, and, and we have to shout out his wife played by Julie White, who's terrific. She's just standing there in the yes. background, watching him talk shit and her yes. actually listening and dialing into Michael Clayton is one of my favorite. Like if you want to watch a scene you've seen 10,000 times and then like reread the whole thing is like, watch mm-hmm. her face reacting mm-hmm. to what, that exchanges and how and the hypocrisy of her husband it's just fantastic it's so good yeah because she's just like god this guy fucking sucks and i'm married to <laughs> but yeah so like Clooney in that scene is just so beleaguered and so exhausted 
and then you get more of his story that like he had wanted to start again with this like restaurant and bar but his brother is an addict and like the money didn't work out and you have all of these things that are like stacking against him narratively from a sort of second chance keeping him from this new opportunity and it's just a hole that he somehow finds himself in it's like how do you get your way out of that it's like Clooney is doing something very like downbeat but occasionally furious that works yes. very and then you just have Tom Wilkinson who I, I didn't even know how to talk about his performance I mean it's mercurial right like he is playing someone who has mental illness and decides to get off his medication because he thinks that the world and he's right that the case that he's working on is horrible and corrupt and it's killing people and nobody cares and like how can he help save the person at the middle of it who's played by a very young very good Merritt Weaver and so like Wilkinson and Clooney are doing like completely different things which is why their characters work so well together because like they're oppositional right but then like Gilroy is just so methodical about fitting the puzzle pieces together in terms of like what's Tilda Swinton doing and like what did her <laughs> company approve and what are these two guys who are watching Wilkinson's apartment and what terrible nefarious thing are they up to and how could Clooney's addict brother sort of redeem himself they're like all of these sort of floating subplots that Gilroy just integrates over and over again and it's so satisfying and I also think it's one of those things where I feel like that was a time I, I would say like let's just say 2000 to like 2010 or maybe like the mid 90s to 2010 these sort of like activism movies like people cared about and watched like Aaron Brockovich was fucking huge. The Insider was fucking huge. huge. Michael Clayton was big. You know what I mean? It's like people, there was a good amount of like crowd pleasing satisfaction that you got from the little guy taking on the bad guy in a story that had real world stakes. Yes. We don't have the big guy first little guy story anymore. Yeah, because the big guy makes Marvel movies. The big guy because the big guy is like fucking Thanos and the little guy is <laughs> superhero. But like you know what I mean? It's like that framing is very difficult to now find in movies about like real people and real lives. Yes. Like there was like Dark Waters that like nobody saw. An anomaly. A great movie. A terrific movie. Great Absolutely. movie that great movie. nobody watched. I mean you have something like Kimmy, which is very good, but like yeah, once like streaming. So it's like these sort of like the person against the system movies which are so satisfying and thrilling and often very well made just like sort of get forgotten but like Mike Clayton is like the top of that heap and I think a lot about the staging of the assassination scene and just how brutally efficient it is and how Gilroy like sets us alongside these people ambush Wilkinson in his home and very quickly strip him down and inject him with poison and leave him to die and like I don't want to say there's nothing remarkable about that scene 
but the movie just takes it in stride and keeps going. Yeah, it's 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 think... remarkable in its unremarkability. It's like it just how how they do not stumble even for one split second in mm-hmm. what they're doing, which immediately makes you go, How many times have they done mm-hmm. this? How many mm-hmm. times? Mm-hmm. And, and the fact who? that like and to who and the fact that like when tilda's character decides to make that call there's no like real regret there like she's decided that this is the only way to get rid of this problem and she'll progress forward with it and so it's just there are all these things about it like the movie doesn't make like a flashy big deal about any of them but it is very it doesn't back down from the idea of like, you can't trust these corporations that have the advertisements where people of all ethnicities are smiling in their <laughs> fields and like the music sounds like a toothpaste commercial and like they don't seem to sell anything, which means they really sell everything. And like, there is that sort of implicit like question what you are being sold narrative. Yes. Which... Uh, feels difficult to find now. And I also love, and we you briefly touched on this with Tom Wilkinson is it's one of the best portrayals of mental illness that I've ever seen. Yeah. Because in a lot of things you watch someone struggle with mental illness. And if you've had to experience it in your personal life, which I have with like family members, etc., mm-hmm. what you realize is when someone is off their meds, mm-hmm. they, can also be just as deliberate and just as sharp as that person who is not on their meds. Right. right. And, and the danger is the unpredictability of what those next extremes are going to be and how their personality is amplified or dulled when they are off their meds. And so mm-hmm. what's so frightening about this character and you can see the fear of, of his unpredictability play out in the movie is that Arthur none of his intelligence is diminished and none of his determination is diminished. It's just that the ephemera around him and these impulses that are now just completely off the reservation, you know, he's smart enough to know and play these games and, you know, that great voicemail scene where he's, you know, recording and he's got the music up loud and he's, 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 he's reading out the memorandum, which is so fantastic. It's like a truly iconic scene. But I, I, I really appreciated his portrayal of mental illness in that regard. And then Clooney, as far as like this guy's just because he's mental, has mental illness and just because he needs to be medicated does not mean his intelligence or his acuity when he's as sharp as hell or when he is off his meds changes. Like he's still dangerous. He's still, he's he's formidable. Formidable. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's someone who, I think he's someone who Clooney, like, I'm trying not to say this in any way that could be perceived as patronizing. I think Clooney is very clearly worried about him. And yet, at the same time, I think he knows that the way he's worried about Wilkinson's character is something that Wilkinson's character would patently reject if that makes any sense like and you see that so much in the bread conversation and I think well because it's 
yes as is like the entire movie but also because it captures like how so many of these people in this movie are having conversations that don't entirely sync up like each of them is saying something different and they're trying to reach the other person and like be honest but where they're coming from in terms of like perspective just isn't sinking so it's like you have Clooney who is like very concerned right like this is someone he cares about he knows he's not taking his medication he knows he was like getting naked in a meeting right (laughs) and that like his notes have disappeared and like there's all this stuff that is happening and Clooney is on the one hand doing the job he's been asked to do and on the other hand legitimately concerned for his friend And Wilkinson just rejects that shit outright in that scene, right? He's basically like, how dare you, like, presume to tell me what to do? You're just a fucking cleaner. You weren't a good lawyer. Like, and you can't, you basically can't step to me like that. (laughs) It's like pretty much what he's saying. And so, like, that scene is great because they're both very genuine. Like, Wilkinson is genuinely like, how fucking dare you? And Clooney is genuinely like, I care I care about you and like, I'm worried about you. But like, there's no reconciliation there, right? And like, so much of this movie is Clooney's character after Wilkinson dies, sort of chasing that reconciliation and like that justification and that explanation for what happened and the revenge of it. And so that's why like that final altercation is so satisfying and it's funny to think about like (laughs) so many of Clooney's roles are about that final like you didn't see this coming and I fucked you like but the tone of Oceans of course is just completely different there's that sort of like sly intelligence and Clooney sort of smirking at you with the like look at what you weren't paying attention to that we were able to do in this movie when you were just like looking at a suave we all looked um but like there is like a brutishness and like sort of a sledgehammer quality to the end of Michael Clayton that is a little bit unlike other Clooney movies it's not as graceful I would say but because it rejects that because it's so like you think I'm a shitbag who would you know not care about the death of my friend for 10 million dollars like the resentment and offensiveness of that gives that scene like so much power so much power it's just like the Aaron Brockovich like we brought you this water from your poisoned well right (laughs) one of my favorite scenes of all time I love that that, like it's that you think I'm a fucking idiot because I don't work for your corporation and because I'm not rich but like I'll show you what you don't know about what you don't know. And like, I miss that quality watching movies, man. Like that's the shit that like, we used to be a proper country. (laughs) That's that's the stuff and I miss it. And there's also self-loathing. That's what's so good about the self-loathing. I sold after out for 80 grand. Yeah. That, that point of like, not only fuck you, because I won't take your $10 million and because yeah. you're an idiot and you should have tried to buy me rather than to do what you tried to do. Mm-hmm. But I sold out Arthur for 80 grand. And then that, the hangover of that, like the reconciliation that he's had with his brother, the, the reconciliation he's had with his other brother who's in the police department to get, to, 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 to get that, that score on settled. tape. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Get it on tape and then walk away. But then that fact of like, and there's still a whole heap of shit that's going to go down with him potentially 
off the books, you know, if his company sues him for breaking NDAs, yeah. whatever. And he's just like, right now I'm just going to come down and I'm going to feel, I'm going to feel like I've done right in the world and I'm going to wear whatever the consequences are of what needs to happen right now, because this is my moment where I get to be as defiant and right as Arthur was. Mm-hmm. And that's what's so great about those exchanges is Arthur's most incisive stuff is not just that the company is shit, but it's like, Sometimes when someone's like, you're just a fucking cleaner. It's like that resonates with him in a way that he needs to address even in in this colossal takedown. This David versus sweaty underarm Karen Crowder tilt Swinton Goliath, right? That he he has that level of self-loathing and awareness and he never loses it. And that's what's magic is because it's, it's in the greatest takedown of her and all of their shit. He he's he's aware of his own hypocrisy um mm-hmm. and it's real it's a relief it's like oh he's not he's not just the white hat no he's not mm-hmm. he's, he's this guy and every every black hair feels like all of the dark things that he's done and that is diminishing his hair color you know like it, it should be all white it should be the white hat but no all that gray is all of those times he's gone out to those houses and then to negotiate with some shitbag husband who's just done something wrong like Dennis O'Hare's Mr. Greer like that's where the movie just takes itself to a new level and it just and and I feel like the momentum of this movie is like a slip and slide like once you are silly enough to think that you can go to bed on a weeknight and put this movie on at 11 o'clock it's all over in like less than a minute you're like the momentum is too much I have to watch this thing to the end Mm -hmm. the momentum is too much and the movie has no like narrative or filmmaking sag like there's no you know like sometimes you can like put a movie on and you can be like all right like i can watch the like first hour and i can and then there's a pee break pee break there's a pee break i can sort of like fuck off for like the next hour but like michael clayton does not allow you to do that if i remember correctly it is like a crisp two hours like yeah. it doesn't like overstay its welcome, but like uh, yeah, once- exactly an hour and fifty nine minutes, which is probably a, a, yeah. an hour fifty three with the credits. So it's, yeah, it's, it's it's moving. Yeah, it's moving. It like tells you who he is, tells you who Arthur is, and it tells you what they're up against, and then you're just like, you're fucking off, man. Like <laughs> you're just there. And I, what's funny too is like, I don't know if Clooney's career past this point has even sort of attempted to like recreate what this movie did you know what i mean like i i just i almost feel like this was like the pinnacle of this kind of performance and there hasn't been an attempt at something similar since and i don't know if that's a and i think clooney he seems to have kind of gone down this i don't know if i had if i'm saying this right but like more like high concept versions of this character mm-hmm. like he's tried to make sci-fi films and he's made period films mm-hmm. and he's trying to have these i guess these wider dialogues with mm-hmm. culture um and he's made a couple of like you know uh, i think good night and good luck is probably one of one of his better films around this time right. so terrific but I, I yeah i don't know if he's i don't know if he's scared to tread on its toes but it just feels like no this is an area you know, it's like kind of late Paul Newman. It's like, this is an area that you belong, like stay mm-hmm. in this area. And mm-hmm. also I think it's a bit of a surrender for him to the voice of Tony Gilroy. Cause Gilroy's like, this yeah. is, I need, 
the the magic trick of Michael Clayton is, as you said, these floating, and I love how you describe it, these floating subplots. That you're like, what is this all doing? And then when mm-hmm. it eventually, when it eventually, like, I don't know, like, um, starts to sort of synthesize all together, it's like every element needs to be answered so that we're standing on this platform at the end of the movie. And so it is a bit of a surrender. And so I think that maybe like, you know, as you get older and you have more control in your career and these sorts of things, it's like you're trying to push the envelope and that surrender. Mm -hmm. Like the next one he does around this time is up in the air, which is very extremely popular as well. Um, But, but that's kind of like the rest of them are more like high concept and he's not the lead character or if he is they're high concepts, you know? So I'm just, um, Oh, he is absolutely fantastic as Baird Whitlock in Hail Caesar. Um, but I, I've, yes. he's, he's so good. Um, but yeah. Like I, I'm I, looking at it too. It's like Men Who Stare at Goats was sort of, like you said, it's like he had a little bit of a time where he was sort of doing like jokey, satirical sort of stuff. Yes. Because like Men Who Stare at Goats was that. I mean, okay. Oh, the, Ameri- Mr. the American is good. The American, American is good. good. The Descendants is quite good too. Yeah, Descendants really is quite good. But none of these are like Michael Clayton. Maybe no. Ides of March is sort of a similar, yeah. sort of like morally nebulous character. But then it's yeah, it's like Gravity, Tomorrowland, Midnight Sky. He did sort of get into like a sci-fi space, which is a little unexpected for that actor. And also like Money Monster, which I just did not. I <laughs> no, never didn't, didn't jive with Money Monster either. No, like didn't didn't not, work for not, me. Not one of mine. Yeah, but yeah. So this is like this is the pinnacle performance, right? And like it just doesn't get better than how sharp his line deliveries are, or how exhausted he looks, or just the way that he, you know, like he keeps this movie moving forward. And it's a great example, I think, like of yeah it's a great example of an anti-hero because like you know that he's done again sort of like luke in place beyond the pines you can intuit that he's done some fucked up shit but in this moment for this situation he has decided that he's going to try to do the right thing and whatever that entails he's going to attempt one to do right it thing. that one right that thing. one right thing and like that kind of like moral fortitude is always a good movie it's always, always. a good time yeah it's 10 out of 10 yeah 10, 10 out of 10, 10 a good time exactly you know I, I i i think i've said this phrase before but like if you just gave me the log line or like where what that was doing i'm like oh that's deeply my shit i'm like mm-hmm. yeah i'm gonna watch that i'm gonna i'm gonna mm-hmm. watch that mm-hmm. you have stayed up very late to talk to me for these podcasts <laughs> and i'm so grateful but i'm gonna love you and leave you um i love talking movies with you you are truly special and um yeah, you're just the best. And actually, I I've I, I don't say this often enough, but mm-hmm. sometimes when my friends are on other podcasts, it just makes me miss them so much. I'm like, oh, oh my god, why haven't buddy. I podcasted yeah. with Roxana like ten times? And so, um, thank you to our friends at Screen Drafts for uh, getting you on for that great Baby Goose uh, draft and uh, all of your um, amazing debate to to not only inspire me but to like to incentivize that there was a few things that we need to talk about and. Yeah, you're just the best and I appreciate you so much.